We are in Jonah chapter 3 tonight, and Jonah 3 is a very interesting text. All of Jonah is a very interesting text when you consider the things that go on in there. But um, with me, as always, is, is Mickey D. Mick, how you doing, buddy? Are we in? I'm doing really well over here. I'm just a little terrified with my internet connection, but, you know, I'm We'll sally forth, as you say. There you go. Well, the, the good news about the internet connection is, is, is some fun snap, crackle, and pops there. But the, the good news about that is that Mick has an ongoing presence in, in our teaching here. He is my ongoing commentary. And so I've got a chat screen here that he's going to be chatting me his thoughts, and I will be able to give them to you in real time. Some of them are because I'm going to make a boo-boo or something, and other times it's just I've, I forgot to say something that I should have or I should have uh, something great to bring out. And, and so Mix has just texted everybody. He'll be texting me his running commentary, but it's good to hear from you, Mick. And the good news is, is that though we have internet issues in this Zoom world that we find ourselves in, none of that matters to God. God is able to do what God wants to do. And with that, let's open in prayer. God, we just thank you for this time we have tonight. We thank you for Jonah chapter three and and what you did through Jonah, Lord, it doesn't make any sense, but you used him in a mighty way and you changed the course of history, at least for one generation. And God, we just are so thankful that we get to study this ancient text and that we can have the, the joy of applying this ancient text to our life. I mean, wow. And we get to find out what makes you, you, God, what makes you, what, what's important to you. And that gets to be something we get to find out tonight. And we just thank you, God, for this great time we have in your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So tonight, I'll keep, uh, keep bringing in people here. Hold on a second. Right, welcome, welcome. Tonight, we're calling this one Relented. And that is kind of a, an awkward word. Uh, we will get there. It, it, it's going to be in, in verse 10 tonight. Just 10 verses tonight. So that, that, that's the Joel curse, because you're sitting there in, 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 your, in the audience and saying, oh, yes, 10 verses. So we're only going to get so much Joel tonight, because it's only 10 verses. But then you realize it's me. And so I'm going to keep bringing stuff out, and I'm going to keep talking. And hopefully it'll be the same amount of time. But you see a shorter text, you might think, oh, it's going to be a shorter lesson. Who knows? Jonah 3, 1 to 4. Here we go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Good job, Jonah. Because the last time God did this, you tucked tail and ran. So, okay, this is huge. This, this is a step in the right direction, Jonah, but I digress. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. All right. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Wow. So we have here a second time. I remember a time in my life where I got a second time. I had some, um, I've always been battling with my weight. Most of my adult life, I've had issues with my weight and the health that comes with that. And it's just something that, you know, it is a struggle because you have to struggle. 
That's, that's that old line I've been using. Life is, you can't call life, something in life a struggle unless you actively are struggling against it. And my journey with my weight and weight loss, uh, that has definitely been a struggle. And so, yeah, so I, it was one of those things where I got to go to, to the doctor and doctor did some blood work and, and diabetes runs in my family. And so for the doctor, he did, took my blood work and I get, I get this phone call. And the phone call was not a fun phone call, but the doc said, listen, he, he, he said, there's a certain number, that's the diabetes number. Your number is just underneath that number. It was a great put up or shut up moment in my weight loss history. And you gotta understand, I've lost a lot of weight before, gained it back, lost even more weight, gained it back. So it's just been a back and forth. It was just one of those great moments where I was awakened by this doctor. It's like, this is it. If you don't want to be diagnosed, you know, if, if you don't want to, if you don't want to get back on the horse, if you don't want to, you know, start losing this weight again, then, then we'll have another set of blood work and we'll be having a different conversation. But this is kind of like your last chance. This is a great put up or shut up moment of your weight loss history. And so I got into action and I was just torching it. And I was doing what I should do. I was afraid to eat. I had to go see a nutritionist. And the nutritionist was telling me, you're eating too little. You have to eat more. And for a guy my size to have a doctor tell me you got to eat more it was a fun experience. All these things were just boom, boom, boom. were working really well. And I lost a bunch of weight. And I did some blood work. And the doctor was just like, you're never going to believe this. But yeah, you know, you were at this dangerous pre-diabetic mode and, you know, you still are pre-diabetic because that really can't change, but dang, your numbers look good. You got to keep going. And see, the problem was, I began to believe that. The problem was, I took my foot off the gas pedal. The problem was, I began to say things like, I got this. I know what to do. I know what works. And I got this. So I started gaining weight back and I began, I had this great journey on Facebook and people were cheering me on or rooting for me, go big guy, go and lose that weight. And I was doing all these things. And then this happened and I started gaining weight back and I felt really embarrassed. And so I had to have this moment where I got back on the scale again and I had to realize, okay, it's the beginning of this year. Like I had to get back on the scale again. Okay. So did I let myself go again? And then I realized if I got on the scale of January 1st, I have hope. I can do it. I can get back. I can go it, and I can do it again. It can be okay. Problem is, I needed that second time. I needed that second time to reset. And these second chances are great. And mixed texting here, God doesn't owe anyone or anything a second chance. And there's the grace blessings from God. I got that with my weight loss thing. Jonah's getting a second chance here. Jonah had to be tossed overboard, swallowed by a sea monster, vomited out by a sea monster, smelling like the inside of, of fish guts, just to get, just to get this second chance. So here he is. I got my second chance with my weight loss. And Jonah's getting a second time here. And good for him. I like what God says here. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Who's the one speaking there? It's God. For some reason... God thought Nineveh was a great city, so much so that he brings it up. He's now done it twice. Was Nineveh great in Jonah's eyes? Heck no. But Nineveh, for some reason, was great in God's eyes. It was important to God. It was important to God to pursue these people. For some reason, God wanted to pursue these enemies. 
proclaiming. Yeah, you know what, Jonah? I, I've been arguing all my adult life that pound for pound, the greatest missionary in the Bible is Jonah. Because Jonah shows up, and we're going to see what's going to happen. But what's Jonah's proclamation? It's not even a sentence, hardly. In Hebrew, I'm holding up a number five. It's five words. If only a sermon you listen to is only five words. How about that? He utters five words to Nineveh. Boom. Five words in Hebrew at them. And then that's it. And so let's all make sure we're muted here. So I'm trying to mute everybody here. So please do not unmute yourself. Thank you. So he's proclaiming. Jonah has an interesting ministry here. Jonah received a second chance to participate in God's mission to reconcile his enemies. God has a mission to reconcile those who are his enemies. God wants to, ever since Adam and Eve had to get kicked out of the garden, God's mission is to be reconciled with them. The Hebrew word for Jonah's, for Jonah's ministry kind of means this, this he's getting started by walking in, walking a day, a, a day in there, and uh, it, it kind of has an idea of letting loose or untying. And the, the second word in that little issue kind of means to pierce. So we get this implication here is that Jonah's ministry is letting go. He's just letting go. He's getting into the city finally and then just letting go and letting just the words fly, letting, letting, letting the ministry he's supposed to be doing happen. And even as he waited in enemy territory and to see God use these very words to start piercing souls. What's really cool is that Jonah's not going to preach a very big sermon, but God's going to take this sermon and do very, very big things. And yeah, especially a small little message. And another cool thing here, in Jonah's sermon is overthrown. This word that in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That word overthrown is to be overturned. It brings up the idea of like a Sodom or Gomorrah, you know, hellfire raining from the sky. But sadly, or I guess excitingly enough, there's hope there. In the midst of this, in the midst of the despair, there's hope for Nineveh. And this would be a hope that I don't think Jonah really wants to proclaim. But there's hope here. And the idea is this. You will be overturned. But even with that word overturned, there's an idea of a turn. And so, unless you indeed turn. So it's like, you're going to be, God's going to overturn you unless you turn itself. And so, built into the word overturned that, that, that Jonah uses, like a double entendre, a double meaning. It's like, God's going to turn you unless you turn. Unless you begin this repentance, this humility, something about this, God is going to smite. God is going to end you. But there's still a chance built in here. It's, there's still a chance. And so that's Jonah. Jonah shows up on the scene. And Jonah is faithful. Jonah proclaims exactly the message that God gave him. Remember in chapter one, God wanted him to preach against Nineveh. Well, this is an against. There's nothing fluffy about this sermon. There's nothing, you know, to, to hold on to at night about this sermon. There's nothing cuddly. It's, it's like one of the old uh, preachers had said, turn or burn. That's basically it. This is one of those, the great put up or shut up moments in salvation history when it comes to God's enemies. And that's what Jonah did. That's the Jonah part. And there's, uh, he's an interesting ministry. He's a hope amidst despair. 
And so we have a response here in number five, verse five. And this ought to blow your mind. The Ninevites believed God. Well, I don't think Jonah was expecting this. Maybe Jonah was thinking they're going to put him on a, on, a, on a stick and spike him like he's a rotisserie chicken and haul him out of there. Because these guys have a reputation for torture. Maybe he's thinking, okay, God, I'm going to speak your message, but there's no way I'm going to get out of this alive. There's just no way. But they believe God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is kind of an Old Testament way to say I'm humble and I'm repenting. Wow, kind of like we might think of like today, kind of like potato, back on those old kind of potato sacks. Um, and yeah, Mick's responding. I think Jonah feared that they would respond. Mick's exactly right. We're going to see this in chapter four. Next week, we're going to get into Jonah's mind. And Jonah's going to start talking about why he's upset that the way chapter three unfolded, unfolded that way. So Jonah could have been afraid that they were going to kill him because that's their reputation. But deeper than that, Mick, Mick hit the point there. Jonah's really afraid that they're going to turn. Because if they turn, that means God doesn't have to kill them. And I think Jonah wants God to kill them. We don't quite know yet. That might be a spoiler alert, but we're going to get there. We, you, you, you've got to have that agitation, that tension somewhere within you. Because if God told you to, to get on a, a plane and go, go to Afghanistan and start preaching towards the ta Taliban or Al-Qaeda, Al part of you as a patriot, you might want to say, they killed a lot of our people. I don't really want them to know Christ because the moment they know Christ, I might see them in heaven one day and they don't deserve him and they don't deserve anything but God's judgment. And it's really easy to think that way. It's not right. It's absolutely not fair. It's absolutely not biblical because you don't deserve heaven either. Neither do I, my goodness. But when you're talking about, when we start dividing life into teams, you got like Jonah's team and the, the one that's not on Jonah's team. Jonah's thinking, yeah, I know why God would be faithful to us, to Israel, but to them, no way. So that's what we're going to see next week. We're going to see this tension and God's going to be like, what's your deal, Jonah? And Jonah's going to unload at God. It's going to be a really cool moment. But yeah, Nineveh believed God. A fast was proclaimed, all of them from the greatest to the least. I mean, dang, they believed and they had a fast. This is like a movement of an organic, humble response. I mean, if you take the word at face value here, if you really take this as what happened, then Jonah only got to talk to a third of them. He didn't even make it through the whole city. He got in there. He talked with a third of the people. He walked a day in. It's a three-day journey to, to cross the city. He got about one day in and started going. And they started responding. And they started responding. And they had a fast. And so this is like an organic movement here. They end up believing and repenting. And, and, and even the livestock are going to have to undergo things. My goodness. You would expect, you would expect this to come down from the top. Like in our case, you know, with our, with our states and our countries, we have a president, we've got a governor, we've got legislators. We're expecting this to be a top-down decision. Like the president or the king comes in or a governor comes in and says, okay, here's what we're going to do, and then boom. But this is like organically happening on the streets. People realizing, oh, goodness, we have to do something now because this prophet has now spoken the words of this God, and we believe it. And so we have to start doing something now. 
And so we see this happening on the street level and trickling up and trickling up and trickling up. So eventually the king's going to get a hold of this. And then what's the king going to do? So we have this movement of an organic, humble response, even the livestock. My goodness, the livestock. Yeah, the livestock. Verse six, the king. This gets really good. It's already good because we weren't expecting the Ninevites to respond. So many of us, when we're trying, when we feel God telling us to share the gospel with somebody, we're so afraid of their response. Oh, they're not going to want to be my friend anymore. Oh, they're going to say things and I won't know what to say in return. I'm going to be afraid of looking like an idiot or I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm afraid to talk to them and maybe God's going to do this or maybe God's not going to do that, but I don't know. And that great unknown is going to keep me stuck on my seat where I don't want to be faithful to God because I'm afraid of what could happen. I'm afraid of what could change. I know that's a lot of my life where I wouldn't share the gospel with people because I didn't want to lose a friendship. I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. I didn't want to look like an idiot or like, I'll just look really stupid in front of these people. And then all of a sudden God's going to look stupid because I was not good enough or whatever silly excuses I gave myself. But here's the king six to nine. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, so you got to understand, this is trickling up from the street. Eventually, eventually the king's going to be like, what in the world's going on out there? My goodness, this, this place is huge, but everybody's, is, what's going on? So the king's not really changing anything here, just, just for, 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 to see this here. All he's doing is ratifying it. He's giving it the royal imprimatur. Here it is. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Wow, throne and robes there. He was seated on a throne. He was wearing royal robes. Instead, he got off the throne. He took off those robes. He found a new throne, which was the humble dust, and he put on sackcloth. That's his new royal garment. He couldn't do anything more to self-humble himself, to, to be more humble here. It's amazing. He then proclaimed, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not, do not let them eat or drink. Now, many people say fasting, no eating, and they'll say, well, I can have drinks. I remember doing, um, those like, however long they were, with, you used to do them in youth groups with like world fish or something. You'd have these fastings overnight, 36-hour fast or something like that. And, and it was this crazy thing, but you, you would allow drinks. You could drink, you know, fruit juice. You could have water. A lot of us adults would drink coffee, that kind of stuff. These overnight fasts to raise money for some project or something. But this is no eating or drinking. It's nothing going in. Wow. Herds or flocks. These poor animals. I don't think they're going to know what's going on. Don't let them taste anything. No eating or drinking, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. You have to go out to all those cows. You got to cover them in sackcloth too. Dang. Wow. This is, this, is, this is almost humorous. This is kind of silly looking at this. But in the midst of this silliness is some flat out seriousness. It's like, okay, but got to give them credit. These guys are taking it seriously. They're like, oh man, we got to repent. And what does repentance look like to your God? Dust and ashes. We got to do dust and ashes because we don't want to die. Okay. Let them give up their evil ways. Let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Something the prophet Joel would also say one day. Who knows? 
Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Yeah, Mick texted me, like in the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, repentance is seen and true repentance is evident. It's a good point. You got to give Zacchaeus, that wee little man, much credit. He was willing to change everything for the sake of Jesus. And whoever he defrauded, he pay it back. Yeah, this is repentance is something that we see. It's not something that's just on the inside. Far too many of us think that we're okay with God because we repent on the inside, but our outside never changes. And the world around us is never seeing any difference in our lives. That can't be right. Repentance needs to involve. And so we see here uh, in, in Numbers 2 to 6, the inside changes. Hi, sweetheart. Daddy, Daddy's teachings. Why don't you go play? My, my three-year-old came and found me. The inside changes. The outside changes. And sending it upward and outward. So it's like something about the inside. Have this fast. And when you fast, something's changing, something's changing with you on the inside. Now that has to happen on the outside. And then look upward. Call upon God. Call, look up, call upon him. And then outward. Repent of your evil ways. These things that you used to be doing, stop it. So this outward needs to change. Your inward needs to change. Your outside needs to change. Your inside needs to change. Otherwise, we're going to perish. So if you call yourself a repentant person, and not everything in your life has changed, your outside and your inside, I think we've got a problem. We can't have that. We just, we, just, we just can't have that. That is not repentance, biblical repentance. Repentance is turning. Think of it like the gift tag on Christmas Day. You've got a to and a from. You're turning. You're turning to somebody, but you're turning from somebody. The from you're turning to is, is turning from is you. The turning to is God. Mick texted in, who knows? Shows that the king realized that God is God. He doesn't owe anyone anything. Yeah, we're going to get there. God doesn't do any quid pro quo. Yeah, God, God's not going to, it's not like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do certain things and God is going to uh, just have to respond now. Like I'm going to have God over the barrel and God is, is going to just have to do what I say. So, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. And there's this radical earnestness and sincerity here. The king responds very different than Jonah does when he hears the word of God. Jonah believed God, and he ran. The king believes God, and he's motivated to action. Jonah ran, the king repented. Jonah prioritized a self-centered response. The king, a self-humbling response. The people are fully convinced of their danger and want to ensure that everyone participates in the repentance. Now think about that. Not feeding the animals. What was their economy? Animals. I mean, that's their entire world. These animals. You don't feed the animals, the animals just might die. In fact, there are stories that say if you forget to feed a cow, or like a flock of cows for, for a, a day, after about 24 hours, they start mooing so loudly, you can hear those moos half a mile away because they want food. Could you imagine thousands of cows that don't have any idea why they haven't been fed? They are by definition calling out to God. 
they are at. Can you imagine the scene and the sounds and the anguish in the fields? Could you imagine all these things where these animals are just mooing and crying out and, 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 God, and the king is telling the people, you also cry out. Hear all those moos? You cry too. You cry out to this God, wail, plead, whatever you have to do to be humble before this God. What a scene. I mean, what a scene. Could you imagine? What an object lesson for a nation like Assyria that was known for its false gods and its self-worship. That's kind of us in our Facebook generation. We're known for our self-worship. We're known for, hey, look at me. Like my post. Share my story. Whatever it is. The radical earnestness and sincerity and urgent crying out and as of man and especially beast, national and personal repentance. It literally says this in the Hebrew. It literally says, let each person repent of his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. So it's like there's something internal that needs to be repented of. And the things you were going to have on the inside, you were going to act on it. Remember, this is Assyria. They were a very violent culture, a very torturous culture. The evil you were going to do in your hands, repent of that. Your inside needs to change. Your outside needs to change. And a nation is nothing but a bunch of individuals. So every individual needs to do this. And then as a whole, the nation is doing this. It's amazing. But this is the very reason that, God, that Jonah didn't even want to go there, this violence. Who knows, O king? Who knows? Well, that's an expression of humility. You know, the king can rely on, upon the, the king can only rely upon God's compassion. The only chance the king has is if God is compassionate. That's it. But I love that who knows. God is God. He doesn't know anyone anything, Mick says. But who knows? There's still hope. There's still hope within that who knows. And we have to land upon that. Who knows? Well, maybe God will turn from his fierce anger. But verse 10 is a great verse. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God saw. Let me pull the screen down here just a little bit. God saw. God relented. And God did not. I, it's really great to know that when we do things, it's also very terrifying to know this. But when we respond to God, when we worship God, when we pray to God, when, when God gets through to us through his word, God sees us. God sees us. He knows us. He sees what we're doing. He sees what we're not doing. God sees us. And God saw the Ninevites here. Make text it in. Whether deliverance happens in this life, and definitely in the next, God responds to repentance. And that's the case here. God saw, and believe it or not, God relented. The King James will say God repented. And that's, that's a lacking translation because of the way repenting sounds. But we'll get to that in just a second. The, kings, the God saw, God relented, and God did not kill everybody. God did not. God's fierce wrath was not shown. So the great compassion of God... 
the Hebrew word when it comes to people for here, it, it can mean sorrowful repentance. So if this was me and I, it's a repentance, it's kind of like a sorrowful, I'm sad at my sin. I'm grieving at my state that I'm repenting of that. And, but when it comes to God, God doesn't have any sin. So can God repent? Not in the sense that I repent. I repent because I'm a sinner. You repent because you're a sinner. God is not a sinner. So God doesn't repent that way. But if repent has a basic meaning of turn, as we discussed, then does God turn? God can change direction if it's in God's will to change direction. It's not a quid pro quo in the sense that I can now alter God and I can cause God to do something I want to do by my, he's waiting for me to make my choice and then I make my choice and then God responds and then God changes his actions or whatnot. No, that makes God less God and God more dependent upon me. But God's, God didn't do what God threatened to do. God said, you've got 40 days and you better humble yourself essentially. And, or my wrath is going to come. And well, God changes direction here. Theologically speaking, this is something that God had already decided to do. Otherwise God's dependent upon Nineveh for that data, that input to be able to know what to do. Makes sense. And God changes his mind by our prayers and our repentance and responses. He will never change his purpose. Yeah, I can agree to a point. Um, again, the only problem I've got with if, if God ever is dependent upon me for my, for my data to find out what I'm going to do, like if God's pacing the corridors of heaven waiting to know if Eve is going to eat that apple or not, that's an issue. Either God already knows or God doesn't already know. And so... But the New Testament is clear. We are encouraged to pray. We are encouraged to petition. We are encouraged to, uh, we are encouraged to participate in these things. But, you know, theologically speaking, I, 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 it causes me to wonder how deep my participation goes. But yes, I mean, there is, there's a change here where God, where God doesn't change, but God decided not to. The great compassion of God. His purpose is set. He's sovereign indeed, Meg. This is going to be Jonah's issue in chapter four. Because God's judgment, believe it or not, included the possibility of mercy. So when, it, when a preacher says turn or burn, the, it's implicit in there that if you do turn, you're not going to burn. Mercy is implied within that doom and gloom sermon. And it just so happens, on the off chance, Nineveh turned. So God doesn't have to show his wrath, he shows his mercy instead. And this very option is why Jonah didn't want to go. And we're going to learn that next week. That's the great compassion of God. Reconciliation with God is a threefold movement. There's three, there's three key words in our text today. And if these three words are not present, a person will never be reconciled to God. A sinner has no chance. First is overturned repentance and compassion. The three major actions in this text, the three things necessary. Jonah's preaching spoke of an overturning that pierced the very souls of the evil Ninevites. This conviction led to repentance where humility and self-denial responded to the expectations of God. Repentance, self-denial. So when Jesus says you want to follow after him, you got to deny yourself. Because the more you practice self-denial, the more your, your brain gets attuned and your spirit gets attuned with what the Holy Spirit is doing. 
and you start paying attention and keeping a step with the spirit, the New Testament says. Overturned. Their hearts were pierced. You see, this is why, this is why we give the law and then the gospel. The law pierces our souls because we, 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 we read the Ten Commandments and we realize that I have broken those commandments and that makes me a lawbreaker. And I therefore have no answer for my sin. And it is a convicting, humbling thing. We realize that the only answer can come from God. So I told a lie. I, I'm now a liar. I've stolen something thou shalt not steal. I'm now a thief. All these things. Kids. All these things. <laughs> and my inner monologue is, can I teach a class with my children right here? They've been with me all day, but they're here right now, too. They want to be by their daddy, and they want to be by their daddy while he's teaching God's word. I get it. I can't be too angry. But I can snap my fingers, and hopefully they'll listen. There he is. This is why we give daddy. the... Hi, buddy. This is why we give the law. We give the law because it convicts us. Nineveh, need to be they, Nineveh needed to be convicted. Nineveh needed to be convicted. Then in that conviction, they needed to repent. And then even after they repented, they needed one final thing. They needed God to show compassion. Because it would be fully fair for them to be convicted, for them to repent. And God would still be just that God doesn't have to show compassion. No sinner ever deserves salvation. Well, I did what you said to do, God, but you still didn't save me. No one ever deserves mercy. No one ever deserves grace. The moment you deserve grace, it no longer is grace. We've talked about this before. So, yeah, the conviction led to repentance where humility and self-denial responded to the expectations of God. God responded with compassion. So overturned, repentance, compassion. Those three things have to be there for a sinner to be reconciled with God. And if they're not there, we don't know. Nothing will ever happen. God responded with compassion. Nothing Nineveh could do could secure that compassion, hence the who knows of the king. Nothing the king or the people were going to do was going to be able to get, get Israel's God to do what, it spoke, what he said he, was, he might do. He might, might, the compassion to possibly happen. Hence, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what he's going to do? Well, for a person to be reconciled with God, the Holy Spirit has to penetrate the soul of the sinner with his word. He has to lead the sinner to repentance, and then he may sovereignly respond with compassion and forgiveness. Let me say that again. For a person to be reconciled with God, the Holy Spirit has to penetrate the soul of the sinner with his word. He has to lead the sinner to repentance, and then may sovereignly respond with compassion and forgiveness. Mick texted in here, we also need to remember that God uses anthropomorphic characteristics to communicate points. For instance, God can't forget is the idea that he won't bring up. Changing his mind means that he is actually waiting for us to respond to him. Okay, I can see that. That's part of God's plan all along. God is not like us. God is free to judge the rebellious by... Um, by strict justice. When someone rebels against God, God is free to deal with them justly. And then even when they repent, God doesn't have to forgive them. See, that's the thing. 
We look at the New Testament when it talks about confessing our sins. That's a blessing and a promise of God. True repentance. The thing, with, the thing you got to understand, though, is that repentance doesn't hold God over a barrel or throw God's handcuffs on God. Like, hey, I got you now, God. I've repented. And I, you have to do what I say now, God. You have to save me, God, because I've repented. Do you, do you see how stupid that sounds? There's no repentance in that attitude. That attitude kind of says, okay, God, I've got you. You've got to, you've got to do, come through for me now. Here it is. You've got to do this. You've got to do this because I've repented. You see, God is still just. If I am a lawbreaker and I have broken the law, God is under no obligation to give me grace. God can still be a fair and just God, and God can punish me, give me his justice. And I have earned that justice. So God is never under, under any obligation to save anybody. So if ever we're sitting, sitting there thinking, oh, well, why is this person saved and this person not saved? Why is it that you have Jesus and this one over here doesn't? None of us deserve Jesus. None of us deserve this salvation. None of us deserve any of this. But God has chosen to give grace to some. God has chosen to do this for me, for you. Fairness doesn't even apply there. It's like the parable of, of, of the, the landowner with, with the, the tenants working, uh, the, 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 the day laborers who some worked from day, daybreak and some worked at the very end, and they all got paid the same wage. And, and the, 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 the boss at the end was like, listen, it's my money. You're going to tell me how to spend my money? Aren't I allowed to spend my money how I wish? Did you get what you had coming to you? Well, yeah. Well, can I give him what, what I think he deserves too? It doesn't really matter. I can do what I want. That's God's grace. If God chooses to show grace, that's God's business. See, the great who knows of the king of Nineveh, who knows, is that even if they do repent, God doesn't have to come through and show compassion. God is not contractually obligated to save them just because they repented. But the great truth of God's word is, if we truly repent, if we truly turn to him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength, then he promised he will. And that's the great promise of 1 John 1, 9. You see, God is not like us. You see, God is also not, is free not to judge the rebellious and indeed to forgive them when they repent. That's Jonah's biggest fear. We're going to learn that next week. His biggest fear is not going to be that he's going to die from street preaching, is that God's actually going to come through and forgive these bozos, these jerks, the enemy. See, God's free to do that. And so theologically speaking, that's why I'm a Reformed theologian. Because a person doesn't just repent willy-nilly. You have to be drawn to repentance. Because I'm never going to give up my ways on my own. Are you kidding me? I needed the doctor telling me about my blood levels and saying enough is enough. This is it. That was my great moment right there of you better now get on it. I needed that wake-up moment. And then it was a daily struggle to keep doing the right thing, doing the right thing, doing the right thing. See, Nineveh needed that too, but God was drawing them to repentance. Otherwise, a person will never repent. You'll never, never stop serving yourself versus worshiping God. Wow. The king knows it's in the hand of God, the judge. God in his love longs for people to return to him even when they are wicked. He is free to judge according to his righteousness or to forgive according to his compassion. If God wants to show you compassion, or if God wants to show you his righteousness, which means you're going to be judged. That's God's business. And because you are God's enemy as a sinner, God is, is just to do either. So the fact that God has decided to save some, 
that's something we rejoice over. Nick texted in, like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they didn't know God would deliver them, and they took their stand, and they took their stand either. And repent, this is a gift of God. It definitely is. I don't know why some people have not turned to God. Theologically speaking, we can only pray that God is eventually going to draw them to him and that it's not their time yet. And in that ignorance, we keep preaching to them. We keep sharing God's love to them. We do kind of a modified version of what Jonah does. Jonah doesn't even want to do it, but he was faithful and God used that faithfulness. Let's close here. When Jesus literally mentions you, Believe it or not, Jesus mentions this text. He's talking about the sign of Jonah. And in Matthew 12, 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all these people who think they're good with God because they do these things and they have these careers and they've given their life to all these things and they think they're good with God. So when God's Messiah shows up, they don't want to lose what they've got. So they start rejecting him and they're so full of themselves. They can't see what God is doing. And so Jesus is condemning this generation. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah was here. Think about that for one second. This generation. Think about this for one second, these men of Nineveh. Who is Nineveh? And who is Jonah? Nineveh, they were the big dog. Jonah, he's the little yapper dog. Israel was like the little annoying yapper dog going around their ankles. Whereas Nineveh, the, the Assyrians were like the big like bull terrier who's out there. So it was incredible that the Ninevites even gave Jonah any credence at all. He was a prophet from a people that they had dominated. His message is short and only speaks of their doom. And yet, even though Jonah didn't speak about their sins, they recognized their sins and they repented of them. Their response was sincere. It was courageous and it was thorough. No wonder Jesus spoke of them as examples of repentance. And behold, the extravagant love of God that welcomes the person who is sincerely repentant. So we got people in our life. They lived a certain way, and then they come to Jesus. And it's really tempting for us to judge them. It's really tempting to go, oh, yeah, it's all called for convenient. You come to Jesus now after all you've done. Well, who do you think you are? Was it awful convenient for the apostle Paul? the one who was also Saul, for that guy to come to God when he did? I mean, how about you? It's like when God is working in your life, God responds to sincere repentance. If you are sincerely turning to God, God does not give you the Heisman pose or keep away. No, because God has drawn you in your repentance to him. And God is bringing you to him. This is a God who is interested even in the salvation of animals, I guess. I don't know why God involved the animals in the repentance. And I don't think animals can be saved, but he's interested in them being a part of this process here. Is interested in anybody. A God who is interested in a people who will not sustain their repentance over, over time is a God who wants everyone to turn to him. you got to understand that. One generation later, there's going to be another prophet um, named Nahum or Nahum, Nahum. And by this time, uh, Nineveh is going to be a bad boy again. 
So this is going to last for about a generation. And then the people are going to die out and they're going to kind of go back to their ways. But I'm fully anticipating there's a generation of Assyrians in heaven from this time period. We get to heaven, we're going to, whatever, whatever we're going to see there, we're going to see people because Jesus mentions them as repentant people and uses them as an example in Matthew 12. So Nineveh gives up the ghost here in one generation later by, by Nahum's day. But in Jonah's day, that's why Jonah's pound for pound the most successful prophet of all time. He says five words and an entire culture comes to Jesus, as it were, comes to God comes to Yahweh. There it is. What a great love of God. That God wants even the wicked to come to him. This is the God who loves the wicked in spite of their wickedness. You catch that? God loves the wicked in spite of their wickedness. What a great God we serve. This wonderful God of ours who wants to rescue Nineveh. It's a great city, indeed. God wanted them. God showed deep care for them. Look at the lengths God went to to secure this compassion. His prophet runs away. Gets on a boat to, to hell and gone. He gets way the heck out of here. God sends a storm. They toss him overboard. God sends a sea monster, whatever it is swallows him, finds him at the bottom of the sea where seaweeds wrapped around his jowls, swallows him, doesn't kill him. The hydrochloric acid in the belly of the sea creature doesn't digest. And he takes him to shore, pukes him out. There he goes. Look at the lengths God has gone to save wicked Nineveh. What lengths has God gone to save you? What has God done in your life? How has God showed his faithfulness to you? How has God shown you his love? This amazing love. How has God pursued you? What has God called you to pursue? Are you pursuing peace in your relationships? Are you pursuing reconciliation? When there's broken relationships in your life, are you pursuing that? Are you being a peacemaker? Are you staying humble? Does the king of Assyria speak to you? He had no business being humble, but he was. And he responded that way. What do you need to repent of in your heart? What about your inside and your outside needs to change and be more like Jesus? These are the questions you ought to be asking. Because Nineveh was the worst of the worst. But when you think about sin, at least philosophically, there is no worst of the worst. Sin is sin. God pursued Jonah. God pursued Nineveh. And just like the sailors once called out, just like Jonah in the belly of the fish called out, Nineveh calls out and God showed compassion. Dang, do you still call out? That's Jonah chapter three. Jonah chapter four next week we're going to get philosophical with Jonah. We're going to figure out what's going on in his mind. God's going to come at him. God's going to argue with him. God's going to deal with drama from Jonah. Jonah's going to be a great drama queen next week. And yeah, it's going to be a, a, a great conclusion. And uh, yeah, Mick texted in. Uh, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's exactly it. 
who God has chosen to save is God's business. And we, we can't, we can't focus on that. We can't, we can't sit there and question, well, God, why'd you do that? Because God did that. That's what God does. God is in the business to reconcile those who have no business being reconciled with God, reconciling them back to him. And that's the beauty of God's salvation. Thanks for bearing with me tonight as uh, we, we, we slog through Jonah 3. I look forward to Jonah 4 next week. God bless.